Ephesians chapter 6 today, and today's message is entitled, Be Strong in the Lord. We're studying verse by verse through the book of Ephesians. And for the first three chapters, Paul has explained all that God did for us. In the last three chapters of Ephesians, Paul explains all that we do for God. The first half of the book shows how we are in Christ, and the second half shows how Christ is in us. You see, we have to have that first half, the relationship with Jesus, first so that we can then live as a Christ follower in that second half. Now, last week in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul told us that Christians must submit to one another, serving each other out of humility. And then Paul gave two very specific applications of what this looks like in marriage. He told us wives must show respect for their husband, even when he doesn't deserve it. And husbands must show sacrificial love for their wife, even when she doesn't deserve it. That's what it looks like when you do marriage God's way. That's what it means to be a spouse walking in the Spirit. Loving and respecting your spouse, not because they deserve it, but because that's God's command for you as a Christian. But what about other relationships? How should a Christian treat their parents? Or how should a Christian treat their children? Or how should a Christian treat their boss? Well, that's what Paul gets into next. So let's pick up in Ephesians chapter 6, in verses 1 through 9, we read about Christians at home and work. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Can I get an amen? amen? When it uses the word children, it applies to anyone still dependent on parents. So if you live under their roof, then you need to follow their rules and obey. If you don't like their rules, then move out. If you can't move out, then we're back to square one. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Notice that this verse does not say, children, obey your parents when they are right. It says, you obey your parents for this is right. The obedience to the parent, that is what is right. We also notice that to obey your parents in the Lord does not mean you only obey your parents if they are Christians. It's actually saying, children, obey your parents because you are in the Lord. You obey them because you are a Christian, not because they are. Now, we need to point out that this command to obey your parents is for children and dependents, not for adults. If you don't live under their roof, then you're not required to follow their rules. You can stay up as late as you want. You can go to bed without brushing your teeth. That's up to you. But you're still required to follow the next command. Paul says in verse 2, he says, Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. This command to honor your father and mother is one of the Ten Commandments, repeated here in the New Testament. No matter how old you are or how independent you are, God commands that you, as a Christian, honor your father and mother. To honor your parents, your first fill-in-the-blank on your note sheet, to honor your parents does not mean to follow their rules, but it does mean that you must respect and provide for them. 
to respect and provide for them. You see, you can respect your parents while telling them, no, I'm sorry, we're not going to make it for Thanksgiving this year. You can respect your parents while telling them, I hear your advice, and I know that you love me and want what's best for me, but I'm going to go a different direction, and I'm asking that you respect me and pray for me, that God would give me wisdom as I make this choice. You can respect a parent that is a non-Christian. You can respect a parent that is wrong. The respect we show them is not earned by the parent. It's commanded by God. And one of the ways that we respect and honor our parents is by helping to provide for their legitimate needs, especially as they age. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 3, 4, and then verse 8, It says, honor widows who are really widows. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. Then verse 8, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So we have these three commands. We have children, obey your parents. We have sons and daughters, honor your parents. And now we have the third command in verse 4. It says, And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. This command is directed at fathers, but it applies to both parents. Don't provoke your children to wrath. In other words, don't parent them in such a way that leaves the child discouraged. Now, don't get me wrong. Paul's not saying don't correct your kids. But Paul is saying correct your kids in such a way that builds them up instead of beats them down. I want us to briefly look at three ways on your note sheet to parent well or If it applies to you, how to grandparent well. Here's the first one. They're sinners. Expect them to act like it. They are sinners. Expect them to act like it. Don't expect your child to be perfect. And don't try and teach them to be perfect. Instead, teach them their desperate need for Jesus. Teach them their desperate need for Jesus. Don't just tell your toddler they can't hit people. Tell them the reason Jesus came and died on the cross is to pay for our sins, like when we hit people. This is why Jesus came. Don't just tell your teenager to simply be kind and be respectful, but tell them the only way they're going to be able to die to their flesh and pride and to be respectful and humble towards others is through Jesus. He's the only way that we can do that. You see, we must bring the gospel into our correction and discipline because the rules that we make and enforce, they cannot change the heart. Only the gospel can change the heart. Only Jesus can change the heart. And so your kids will sin, expect it, be ready for it, and when they do, correct them with the same mercy, grace, and love that God shows you and me when we sin. Here's the next way to parent well. Model your own personal need 
for Jesus. Model your own personal need for Jesus. You see, when you mess up, you should apologize to the person that you sinned against, especially if it's your child. Let them hear you admit your own sin. Don't even just say, I I messed up. Call it sin. Call it for what it is. Let them see you asking God for his forgiveness. Let them see you asking God to deliver you from temptation and to help you walk in the power of his spirit. If you take them to church or you teach them the Bible, that's great. But if you fail to model your own need for Jesus, then your kids are going to see right through your hypocrisy. They'll see that you don't really believe the gospel that you preach. In essence, you'll be telling them, this is really important to tell others, but it's not so important for me or you personally. You must recognize the only way that you can live for Jesus, you as a parent, is by the power of the Holy Spirit. To be being filled with the Spirit, to say, Lord, I can't do this in my own strength. Lord, I need you to empower me to stop serving myself and to serve and love others. I need you to guide and lead me to parent like you want me to parent. And when we give that example to our kids or to our grandkids, we show them that the only way they can live for Jesus is by the Holy Spirit. Here's the third way to parent well on your note sheet. Make Jesus your biggest priority. Make Jesus your biggest priority. The world measures us by our success. So they ask, how popular are you? Or how wealthy are you? How respected are you? How accomplished are you? And it's so tempting to put those same measurements on our kids. And so, based on the things that we say as parents, based on the way that we spend our time, are you pushing your child to love and know Jesus as the top priority? Or are you pushing for good grades or more sports or a college degree or some other earthly temporary achievement. Jesus tells us in Mark chapter 8 verse 36, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? It's one thing for us to read this verse and to apply it to our own life and our own heart and to ask yourself, what am I living for? What is my hope in? But it's another thing to ask yourself, what am I parenting for? What is my greatest hope for my kids? To make sure that your day-to-day parenting lines up and matches with your ultimate goal that, yeah, I want them to be a good kid. Yeah, I want them to be successful. I want them to be independent. I want them to love and serve others. But above all of that, I just want them to know Jesus. Let that be our greatest hope, our greatest goal for our kids. Now, these three points on your note sheet are by no means a perfect formula or a complete formula in parenting. But if you do these three things, then they will help you from provoking your children into discouragement. And they will help you to raise them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. So let's pick back up in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 5. Paul goes on now and he t- says, Bond servants, 
Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart, as to Christ. Now, a bond servant was a slave. In the Roman Empire, you had millions of people that were classified as a slave. And so here, Paul answers the question of, well, I'm a Christian now, and I'm a slave. What do I do? And Paul gives them this encouragement. But today, these verses teach you and I how to be a godly employee, how to treat our boss. He says, serve at your job as if your boss was Jesus. Obey your boss with a sincere heart, not just on the outside, external obedience, but from your heart. You see, as a Christian, there aren't any parts of our life that are secular. You can't live for Jesus on the weekend and then live for yourself during the week. That's not Christianity. That's not what Jesus calls us to. Jesus should influence every area, every part of your life, every day. And so Paul continues explaining how you and I should work in verse 6. Paul says, Not with eye service, as men pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. You see, as a Christian, you should live with integrity, doing the right thing even when nobody else is watching. If you only work hard or do things right when the boss is around, that would be eye service. You're just trying to put up an image of being a good employee. On your note sheet, we have three more points. Notice that these three points are going to apply to all of us. Whether you have a job, or you're a homemaker, or you're retired. So here they are. As a Christian, a Christian worker, or a homemaker, or retiree, as a Christian, you serve Jesus, not your boss. You serve Jesus, not man. You recognize who your real master is. The next one, your hope is heavenly reward, not earthly. Your hope is heavenly reward, not earthly. A pay raise would be great, a promotion even better, but your ultimate goal should be to hear Jesus tell you one day, well done, my good and faithful servant. The third one there, your attitude is to serve, not to be served. Your attitude is to serve, not to be served. Your coworkers, your boss, they should see Jesus in you because of the way that you respect others, because of the love that you show them, and because you work hard and do things right, even when nobody else is watching. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. If you go to work and you act like everyone else, you talk like everyone else, you cut corners like everyone else, then you not only fall short of God's command to you here in Ephesians chapter 6, but you also ruin some of your witness for Jesus. And so if that's you, then repent. Recognize it as sin. 
Be filled with the Spirit. Say, Lord, I can't, I can't listen to this boss in my strength. Lord, I can't do this in my own ability. It's got to be you, Lord. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me to be directed and empowered by you to be the Christian that you're calling me to be. Look at verse 9, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9. Paul says, And you, masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. So now he's talking about the slave owners, the masters in the Roman Empire. Today, talking about the boss, the head honcho, those who are leading. You see, whether you're an employer or an employee, God shows no favoritism. He doesn't treat you differently than anybody else. He expects all of us to honor him in our job. The most important thing to remember for those who are in a place of leadership, in a place of authority, is to remember that one day we will give an account to Jesus for how we ruled over other people. And if we can remember that truth, then that can help us to lead others with humility, to lead others knowing that God is our true master. We're not the masters. Now, Paul changes gears a bit. As we get into verses 10 through 24, he's now going to talk about the spiritual battle, the spiritual battle. So look at verse 10 with me. Paul says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Think about that verse again. Let's read it one more time. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. You see, when my strength is in myself, I eventually fall short. And you know what? Praise God. Praise God for when I fall short because I am forcibly reminded that I can't do this in my own strength, that I need to cling to Jesus, that I need to rest in him, to let him be my strength. Paul says in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. There on your note sheet, whether you recognize it or not, you are fighting a spiritual battle. You are fighting a spiritual battle. According to this passage, according to God's word, we don't fight against people. We don't fight against flesh and blood. We fight against Satan and his demons. They are described here as principalities, powers, spiritual hosts of wickedness, and rulers of darkness. Now, there are two errors that we can make when it comes to demons. Number one, we can believe the lie that demons are behind everything, giving them too much credit. Or we can believe the lie that demons do nothing, giving them too little credit. Paul makes it very clear that in this passage, you and I are fighting a very real battle. 
a spiritual battle. And so because of this fact, Paul tells us in verse 13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. So notice the purpose of this armor of God, the purpose of fighting the spiritual battle, is so that we can withstand the enemy's attacks. In this passage, you're going to see a word repeated over and over, and I think it's important. You might want to underline this word. Paul said it back in verse 11. He said, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Then in verse 13, he said that you may be able to withstand in that evil day and having done all to stand. Verse 14, he starts it off saying, stand therefore. You guys see, he repeats that word, not because he's got a bad memory, but because he really wants to emphasize that is our goal in the spiritual battle, is to stand. God's telling you two things. Number one, you will be attacked by the spiritual enemies of darkness. You will. Whether you recognize it or not, whether you think you're in the game or not, whether you think it's a big deal or not, you will be attacked by the spiritual enemies of darkness. But number two, God has given you all that you need so that you can stand against those attacks. So let's look at this armor of God that he gives us to wear. Verse 14, he says, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. Girded your waist with truth. It's not just enough to know the truth, but you need to actually put it on to apply the truth. Jesus told a crowd of unbelievers in John chapter 8, verse 44, He said to them, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When the devil speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. So Satan is a liar and he's called the father of lies. We're going to look on your note sheet three of Satan's favorite tactics. And this is the first one. He tries to deceive you. He tries to deceive you. The enemy wants to trick you into believing lies. You might remember the story in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden. When when Satan tempted Eve, he questioned Eve, why can't you eat? the fruit from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And after Eve explained why she could not eat it, why God told her not to eat it, Satan responded in Genesis 3, verses 4 and 5, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So Satan gave the lie that sin will not bring death. Satan then gave the lie that said, God is holding out on you. There's good out there, but he's not letting you have it. He's holding out on you. And Satan gave the lie that God is not really good. 
After all, if he was good, he would let you eat from that tree. He tries to redefine goodness. And so you and I must know and apply God's truth to stand up against Satan's lies as he tries to deceive us. Let's look at the next piece of armor, verse 14 again. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth. So we have the belt of truth. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. As a Christian, we recognize that we are not good. God is good. We don't come to God based on our good works. We come to God based on his good works. We are not clothed in our own righteousness, our own efforts and good deeds. We are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. You see, the moment you put your faith in Jesus, he clothes you in his perfection. So that when God looks at you as a Christian, he doesn't see all of your sins and all of your mistakes. And it's not because he's blind or because he's choosing to forget all the things that you and I have done. It's because he sees our sin, but he also sees our faith in Jesus. And so he says, your sins have already been paid for in full on the cross. Your debt was large, but it's also been paid in full. And so we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And that's what it's talking about here. This breastplate of righteousness. God treats you as perfect, as sinless, as righteous. This is so important because another of Satan's favorite tactics is this. He tries to accuse you. Satan tries to accuse you. The enemy wants you to feel condemned. Like you're too guilty, too sinful, too broken for God's mercy and grace. On a side note, there is a big difference between feeling condemned and feeling convicted. Condemnation makes us run away from God because we're believing that lie that says, I'm too horrible and sinful and God's too holy. I'm condemned. I need to get away from God. While conviction makes us run to God, conviction says, I'm horrible, but God will still have mercy and grace for me. He's my only hope. He's the only one I can run to. We read in Revelation chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. It says, so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, the accuser of our brethren. You see, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. Because even though you and I as Christians have been declared righteous by Jesus, Satan loves to try and make you feel guilty and condemned. He wants to whisper in your ear all those sins that you've committed, all those sins you still struggle with. When you try to open up your Bible and read, or you spend time in prayer, you try to come to church and worship, and you have that voice that says, really, you're going to do that now after what you've been doing this week? And we have a choice to feel condemned and to say, yeah, you're right, I'm going I'm to go home early today. I'm going to close up the Bible. Or you have the choice to say, you know what, Satan? You're right. I'm worthless. But Jesus loves me anyway. You know what? You're right. I haven't been living 
how I should be. But Jesus has mercy and grace for me. And it's he that's going to change my heart because I can't change my heart. If we can do that, then we're putting on that breastplate of righteousness. Romans 8.1 tells us, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you've put your faith in Jesus, if you've become a Christian, then no matter what you've done in your past, no matter how horribly of a life you have lived, no matter how poorly you've treated others or treated God, Jesus declares there's no condemnation for you because you are in Jesus. That's amazing. Let's look at the next piece of spiritual armor in verse 15. Paul says, And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The gospel means this. It means, starting off, the bad news. You and I are sinners. We have broken God's law. We've not lived a perfect, holy life. And because of that, we deserve eternal separation from God in hell. That's what we deserve because of our sin. But God, in his mercy and grace, he came down and lived a perfect life on this earth. Jesus lived a sinless life. And yet, even though he was sinless, he died on the cross, taking your punishment and my punishment, our sins upon his shoulders as he took that suffering and death on the cross for you and me. And then he rose again from the dead. So that whoever believes in him, whoever puts their faith in Jesus, will be saved, will be rescued, no longer sent to hell for all eternity, even though we deserve it, but instead we're rescued out of hell and we're given eternal life in heaven to live with God forever. That is the gospel. And so the only way to keep standing against spiritual attack is to always stand in the gospel. That's the shoes that we wear as Christians. We are standing in the gospel. The gospel is our traction and our foundation as we fight against the enemy. The gospel is also how we conquer enemy territory by sharing the good news with others. We cannot expand God's kingdom through politics or by spreading morality. Only the gospel can bring salvation. Only the gospel can conquer enemy territory. Without the gospel, we have nothing to stand on. Without the gospel, we are defeated. Look at verse 16. Paul goes on and he says, Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. The words above all, they don't mean that this shield of faith is more important than anything else of the spiritual armor. But he's saying over your breastplate and your belt and your shoes, over these things, you also have this shield of faith. Notice the image that we're given. The enemy, the wicked one, is shooting fiery darts at us. Fire arrows are being shot at you and me, spiritually speaking. But this shield of faith, it stops those arrows in their tracks and it lets the fire die out so that we're not harmed. You see, another of Satan's favorite tactics is this. He tries to tempt you. Satan tries to tempt you. We need to know 
that Satan cannot force us to sin. Now, I'll confess, my flesh doesn't like that truth because when I blow it, I would love to say, Satan made me do it. (laughs) But I can't say that. That's a lie. Satan can't force me to sin. But he does try to tempt us into sin. You see, when you go fishing, you bait the hook with something the fish desires. And that's what Satan and the demons do for us. They know the sinful things that we desire. And so he shoots these fiery darts at us. He might use a situation to tempt us to lie so that we can escape a sticky, awkward situation. I'm just going to lie. That way it's easier for me. Satan might use a compliment to try and bait you into pride. Satan might use a situation of loneliness or frustration to lure you into lust. The shield of faith stops these arrows in their tracks because our faith is not in our own strength to resist. Our faith is not in our own ability to say no to temptation. Our faith is in the power of God. You see, the moment that you feel tempted, the moment you feel like you've got a situation that you're fighting inside, your heart says, yes, I want this thing, and your spirit says, don't be a moron, and you've got this battle going on, flee. Get out of there and cry out to God for strength to resist temptation. Look at the next piece of armor, verse 17. Paul says, and take the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation is our confident assurance of where we are headed. If you have trusted in Jesus, you're a Christian, then you can know that you are going to heaven. You can know right now that you, whenever you die, whether it's today or it's in 80 years from now, you know you will be in heaven. Because our salvation is not based on us trying really hard. Our salvation is not based on us trying to do enough good works to outweigh our bad works. Our salvation is based on what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And all we do is say, Lord, have mercy on me. Save me. And he will. You see, we put on that helmet of salvation when we recognize God's promise that we will spend eternity with him. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, he says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You see, if Satan can get us distracted by the things of this life, then we've taken off that helmet of salvation. We've lost sight of our future hope. We might not be in blatant sin, but we're choked out by the cares of this world. Put on the helmet of salvation. That is our hope, and that is what we're focused on. Finally, the last piece of the armor in verse 17 Paul says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The sword of the spirit is God's word, the Bible. You might remember how Satan tried to tempt Jesus in Matthew chapter four, verses two through four. 
It says, And when Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. That's quite an understatement. Now, verse 3, When the tempter came to Jesus, Satan said, If you are the Son of God, then command that these stones become bread. But Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If it were me, I'd say, oh, not just bread, bacon, steak, potatoes, you name it. I'm, I'm going to transform it because I am the son of God. But Jesus didn't do that. First, Jesus, he puts up the shield of faith. Jesus doesn't resist in the power of his flesh, but in the power of the spirit. And then Jesus quotes a verse from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Jesus pulled out the sword to resist the enemy. God's word. This is why it's so essential that you and I know God's word. It's why we study it verse by verse. It's why we give you the food for thought, the life group homework in your bulletin, so that you can dig deeper and grow in your knowledge and application of God's word. Getting God's word each Sunday morning is not enough. It's not enough just to come to church and hear the Bible once a week. You need more. Some of you aren't readers. That's okay. You can listen to it. You can put on a podcast and listen to more sermons throughout the week. You can find ways to get more of God's word in your life. This is why memorizing scripture is so helpful. It's why some of the best worship songs are full, packed full of scripture. Sometimes when you're feeling so overwhelmed and just beaten down by the enemy, you can just turn on some great godly worship songs and just sing God's word to rest in his promises and to fight the enemy with praise as you're singing worship. The Bible is not simply truth. The Bible is our defense and offense against the enemy. Now Paul continues in verse 18. Paul says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Paul tells us to be praying always. You shouldn't wait until you're drowning in life to start praying. You shouldn't wait until everything's crumbling around you to start praying. Paul says, pray always. It's like you never hang up the phone. God's always on the line. And so pray always. God both invites us and commands us to pray at all times. You see, when we neglect to pray, it's because we've forgotten that we're fighting a spiritual battle. When we stop worshiping, when we stop asking God for our needs, when we stop thanking God for all he has done, when we stop praying for others, we've forgotten that we are at war. We've forgotten that we don't fight against flesh and blood, but we fight against the spiritual armies of darkness. And so Paul tells the Ephesian church to pray, and then he goes on and says, specifically, pray for me. Paul says in verse 19, and pray for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, 
for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul mentions here that he's an ambassador for Christ, a representative of Jesus, but he's an ambassador in chains because at this moment that Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesians, he is in prison. He's in prison because he's preaching Jesus. And notice, though he's in chains for the gospel, Paul doesn't say, pray for me that I get released. I hope that day's coming soon. He doesn't even say that. Paul simply says, pray for me because I'm in prison and I want to keep sharing the gospel to my guards and my fellow inmates. You see, Paul's not worried about when he gets out of prison. He knows he's in God's hands. But Paul is concerned that his flesh might say, I'm tired. I don't want to speak boldly. I don't want to share the gospel with that guy. He punched me in the face today. I don't want to share the gospel with those people. Pray for me that I may speak boldly, that I may keep sharing the gospel. You see, it's not wrong to share, sorry, it's not wrong to pray for earthly things, but it's far more essential to pray for heavenly things. And so on your note sheet, a question to ask yourself, is my prayer life more about my kingdom or his kingdom? Is my prayer life more about my kingdom or his kingdom? Who you pray for, how you pray, can help reveal whose kingdom you are living for. Paul finishes this letter in verse 21. Paul says, But that you may also know my affairs and how I am doing. Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you. So he's bringing this letter to the Ephesians, and he'll give them an update on how Paul's doing. Verse 22, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs, and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace to the brethren, and love with faith, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. The first three chapters of Ephesians were all about what Jesus has done for us. And now these last three chapters, they tell us how we should live for him. Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you asked him to forgive your sin? Have you asked him to save you from hell, though you don't deserve it? Asked him to give you mercy and grace? If not, why not today? He'll take you as you are. It's simply your choice to say, Lord, I know that I'm not perfect. Lord, I know that I fall short. Lord, I ask that you would save me, forgive me. Fill me with your spirit. And Lord, it's got to be you changing me from the inside out. Because I've tried and I can't fix my heart. I can't fix my life. So Lord, I give my life to you. If you haven't made that decision yet, I urge you, do so today. And you can know today that you are going to heaven 
because it's not based on your good works, it's based on Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you are so merciful and gracious that you came down and you took our sins upon yourself on that cross so that whosoever will believe in you, Lord, you will declare us righteous. You will declare us perfect and holy and blameless. And Lord, for the rest of our earthly life, your Holy Spirit will be changing our heart to be more like you, changing our heart to obey our parents as you call us, to honor our father and mother as you call us, to live this Christian life in sincerity. Lord, if there's anybody here today that wants to put their faith in you, whether for the first time or all over again, just saying, Lord, I've been so distracted. Lord, I've been so wrong. God, I want to give everything to you right now. Holy Spirit, would you speak to their heart right now and just say, come. You who thirst, come and drink of the living water. Lord, for any of us Christians here, we know that we're saved, but we have just been stuck Stuck trying to do things in our own strength. Stuck trying to be the Christian that you call us to be in our own strength. Trying to fight the spiritual battle in our own flesh and blood. Holy Spirit, would you speak to our hearts and just say, put on the spiritual armor. God, may we rest in your truth, in your righteousness, in your gospel, in your salvation have our faith in you and may we be in the sword of the spirit which is the word of God God may you be our refuge and our fortress may you be our victory because Lord the battle that we are fighting is a battle that you have already won Lord Jesus you declared your victory on the cross and then when you rose from the dead Lord this battle is over God, help us to live in light of that truth, to walk in the power of your spirit. God, may you guide us and lead us for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and worship together.